When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Today on the Family Brain, I'll be talking with Dr. Sarah Sarkis, a licensed psychologist, writer, and performance consultant who is based in Honolulu, Hawaii. I know Sarah from our days in college and have been keeping up with her work through her blog, The Padded Room, where she writes about human experience in a way that I have not really seen before. She just takes has a gift for taking very complicated things that happen to people and putting it to words in a way that's beautiful, but makes sense too. So check out her blog, The Padded Room. And today, Sarah will be talking to us about her work as a psychologist and just helping people sort of connect with where they want to be headed next. Um, Sounds like in her work, she focuses a lot on helping people identify places where they feel stuck and helping them move forward. I would love if we could maybe start and you could talk a little bit about what your professional background is and what sort of got you interested in this line of work. Yeah, sure. Um, So, you know, as you know, I went to Georgetown undergrad and um, I studied psych there. I studied psych in English, but I didn't necessarily think I was going to do anything with psych per se. I did. So I went on, I got my master's at Boston College, and then I got my doctorate at George Washington. And I went to this program that was like, um, you know, when you're in a doctoral program, you have to, there's general studies. Everybody's going to do statistics and all these other classes. But a lot of programs have focuses, like they'll have like a cognitive behavioral focus or family therapy. And this one was um, psychoanalytic. So, and specifically Brenner. So, um, that's how I got my training. And then I got out and I was doing a lot of forensics. Like, I really sort of thought that was the route that I would go. But over time, I developed a private practice. And then, so now I work exclusively within a private practice. Uh, 
and I do sort of like long-term insight-oriented work. I am not an analyst, I should say that right up front. Um, but the training was like unbelievable. Okay. It's funny because I had a similar path in some ways, but, and I'm surprised, did you know, I went to Boston College. I don't know if it was at the same time, but I got my degree in social work. And it's funny how it's just, I think, mm, (laughs) I don't even know. I think 2002. Okay. So I graduated in 2000. Okay. Um, isn't that funny? But I feel like, you know, sometimes it's just, you take the next step, like, okay, this is what I know interests me and what's the next thing. And sometimes like psychoanalytic work was never anything that I ended up doing, but not even necessarily on purpose. I didn't even know what I was doing. You know, I just kept doing like the next thing that seemed available, I guess. I totally agree. I feel like oftentimes, and when I work with patients in their twenties, I always say to them, like, especially right out of college, just take a next step. Like, it's not gonna, taking some next step isn't gonna make great when you're 40, but taking no step might. Right, right. <laughs> just take any next step. Right. Um, and I definitely, especially now in my mid 40s, I look back and I'm like, wow, you were like making these life decisions at 22. Right. And so confident that I'll do A and B and then C will happen. Like, really? And well, it's but, laughable yeah, now, right? I mean, it's... <laughs> exactly. Well, the bliss of the 20s yeah. is that you feel so sure that what you're doing matters, right? And But then in our age group now, it's like, you you know, you have a different existential vantage point. But yeah, then back then I was like, this is what I'm doing and I'm going to be a forensic psychologist and I'm going to work with serial murderers and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, no, it's it's just funny how everything sort of twists and turns to get you where you are. Um, I know. So what I know um, you had mentioned talking a little bit about neurobiology. I have to tell you, I... I'm not even sure 100% what you might mean by that. Like, is that basically just how the brain operates and how that relates to how you work with people? Is that correct? Well, or am I um, making that in up? In some ways, yes. <laughs> no, in some ways, totally. But really, what a lot of what I've started, I would say, over the last like 10 years, but more acutely over the last five years, is this interest in how our animals and how that brain came comes online. So, um, for example, like when a baby is born, the hemispheres of the brain are very, very undeveloped. And with that is they don't have great eyesight. Obviously, we have no language. So these, these centers of the brain or these networks aren't integrated yet. So a lot of times when I'm working with patients and they may show like, you know, a certain um, pattern in their life, we can really trace it back to their neurobiology, um, how their brain came online. And that necessarily involves the environment because our animal needs human attachment to survive. So our attachment patterns end up dictating profoundly, much more than genetics, profoundly how our brain and therefore our mind and our feelings 
operate. So that's really the that that's what neurobiology from a psychological standpoint looks at, at least how I look at it. Trying to help patients understand the whole connection between the mind, the brain, and the body. And there's very usually there is very good reason for why somebody displays the behaviors that they display. Where do you think that bent for you or that desire to understand that came from for you? I feel like that's actually a failing in my own. I'm like, "Eh, I don't really feel like talking about science. Let's just talk about ideas. And, And I do, I think that's a weakness in my own perspective, just because it's a lot of work to figure out how the brain works. And I feel like that's not actually what my, (laughs) I'm not drawn to that. But having said that, I want to understand. So what kind of got you interested in in exploring how this impacts people? Well, I'll say this because that's actually a really good question. I tend to think that the things people are drawn to is sort of, it's related to their neurobiology, right? So like your, probably your career expresses exactly how your brain works and so that's great right so some of it is that i you know me i i obviously i am a shrink so i have a very layered answer to that one is that i went when i graduated from georgetown um, i just had like a ton of stuff going on in my family as families you know transition and i was still young you know we're 22 so i went to there were actually, when I was at Georgetown, I started going to analysis, um, and then for like most of my senior year, and then I got out of college and I went and I worked with somebody very deeply in Massachusetts when I was studying at BC. Um, so that I'm sure contributed to me starting to be really interested in like how the mind and the brain work and control your life, right? Mm -hmm. But also, I tend toward um, just being an analytic person by nature. Okay. You know, I mean, I I tend to get into something very deeply, then become obsessed with it. Right. (laughs) Well, you know what? I think that's what makes you such a good writer, though, because I really, really love your blog. And I feel like you probably wouldn't be able to describe something so precisely unless you were somewhat tormented by it for a short period of time. You know what I mean? Like, because I, yeah, because I sometimes am just such a generalist, like, oh, that's just what people do or blah, 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 you know? And I just think you're very good at at really describing um, and using language and putting words to what people go through or just different, um, I don't know what how to even describe it, but just different ways that people's lives shift, and you're you're very good at putting words to that. So, thank you. My I appreciate it. Like my, it's like my labor of love. So I really very good, it. very good. Yeah, thank you. You're so nice. I would attribute basically. I would say this that I've always said this about Georgetown. You know, and I'm, and we both have gone on to lots of good schools to study different stuff, but Georgetown was the first place that ever asked me to think, not just learn. Mm. And in, in that English department in particular really challenged that part of my brain um, in ways that definitely changed me. Yeah. So um, that's a little shout out to the point of 
Yes, I love it. Yeah, um, I know. So what, um, in terms of what you're seeing, like people coming in the door or just your own eyes and how you're seeing the world, what are some of the big things that we're missing in terms of how neurobiology affects us and our behaviors and how we're living our lives? Like, is there, I mean, I'm sure the list is long, but are there some main things that you're like, okay, here we go again. This is, this is something that keeps happening or keeps showing up. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that I think as a field, I don't necessarily know if we're like missing it. And I've also moved more into this world of sort of, you know, mind, body work and performance consulting and positive psychology. So, um, my clientele right now is um, sort of a very particular type of client, right? So it's usually somebody who doesn't have like a major mental illness. And in my book, like a major mental illness is like schizophrenia, stuff I saw when I was working in inpatient psychiatric hospitals. So the answer I'm going to give is due to the population I work with. Right. So that being said. A lot of what walks through my door, if I had to say from the DSM, but I don't have a lot of reverence for the DSM. I mean, I think it's a valuable tool to bill insurance. Um, and in some cases, it's valuable, like if you have somebody who does have schizophrenia or has really severe bipolar or somebody who's like suicidal with depression, you can get a lot of continuity of care. But otherwise, I don't totally love the DSM. If I had to use sort of pop culture words, I would say following the national average and the national trend, the number one thing that comes through my door is some combination of anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And that's very general because that's how the DSM is, right? right. It's taking a sort of yeah, big classification. So that's probably like if you just looked at my roster, the diagnoses that I give the most, whether it's social anxiety or phobia, all the different layers, but mostly it's anxiety and depression. Now, underneath that, it's highly unique. Right. Every person comes in with sort of their own um, narrative. Right. Like and right now, I'm super obsessed and anxious about how I manage my kids' technology. Like, literally, I have a problem. I, I have a problem. Oh, like, I can't even. I uh, it's on my mind, like, every second of the day. Oh, it's exhausting. Like, oh, my God, you're changing his neurobiology. Oh, it is exhausting. Anyway, I was, I just interviewed this woman and um, who is very passionate about how it's affecting kids. And I realized as I was talking to her, I'm just very resentful that I even have to deal with it. But like, okay, now that I've noticed that, okay, now what's next? You know what I mean? But I, I there was like yeah. something I was realizing while I was talking to her. I was like pissed, you know? And I mean, I it's not like parenting's not hard enough. But anyway, so that's my aside. That's my specific anxiety these days is um, managing technology. Yeah. So it, it, underneath all of that, we could, if we were working together, we could really unpack sort of what is behind it, what's the thinking pattern, what's happening for you in terms of your feelings, and we can really unpack it. But something you said that's the most valuable piece is that you can observe mm. that it's happening to you. Right. So oftentimes the very first, and lots of different theories call this a different thing, 
So in my training, we were taught that it's called an observing ego. That's not necessarily the term I use regularly now, but a lot of times the big chunk of work that I do in the beginning with patients is to just create a cadence and the pace that allows the person for the 50 minutes that they're sitting with me to just observe their own interior world in a way that in our regular life we can't or we don't think we can or we're unskilled at observing and until you have that capacity to observe what is going on inside of you, we're pretty much reactionary. We're just sort of reacting to what happens around us. And so, you know, more than the conditions I work with, I would say that is one of the themes that I see come in consistently. In my, by the way, myself, I, like I am just a poor flaw, figuring it out myself. Um, but I see people coming in who feel, um, they feel very like triggered and activated by the world around them. It may show up as anxiety, it may show up as depression, it may show up as OCD, but they are reacting to the world around them with very little capacity to observe at a deep level what's going on inside of them. Right. No, and I love what you said about like, you're just trying to figure it out yourself too, because I think some of the people, it seems like some of the most suffering comes from feeling like you're the only one. Like, am I the only yes. one totally messing up here and just making a Absolutely. mess of everything, you know? And yes. in some ways, recognizing it, we're all in this together. We're all figuring out. And some people have more tools than others because they've, you know, been working on it for longer. Um, but I love but that, giving the people the tools. That you can work on it. Right. Exactly. Like, like the effort put in you really do get, you get progress. You know, it's not like this thing of just like, um, well, I just got a, I caught anxiety from my father. Like he had anxiety, his father had anxiety. I just caught anxiety and I, you know, it got unlocked at me at a certain age. And now I have to feel this way for the rest of my life. It feels that way, right? right. But we can totally work on it. And um, that's how I see therapy as like an active working partnership where you can really sort of, you know, get your hands dirty with your own stuff. And I even tell when I'm working individually with somebody, I say, you know, when we're looking at your relationship or your marriage or your partnership or your parenting style or friends or work colleagues, we're only looking at those relationships insofar as what it will reveal to us about you. Mm. Instead of just picking apart every scenario that's yeah. been a part of your so life. Your yeah. own relationship with yourself. Right. And how much of that involves like goal setting for the future for you? Or is that more or is it more like how what's your balance i guess of looking at the past versus like being future focused yeah that's a really good question um it just depends on so the person for me 
Yes. Well, it depends on the person that I sort of for me now, for a long time, I didn't even really understand per se how I operated. I just operated and I felt effective. I felt connected to my clients and I felt, you know, effective, but I didn't have like the same level of comfort in your own process as you do when you're like mid-career. Right. It's like, now I get it. So for me, usually I tell people, we're going to have six, we're going to have about six sessions, six one-hour sessions roughly, where before we really feel as though we kind of have our first chapter that we want to work on, that's what I call them, and that will usually just surface in the course of coming in and talking every day. Um, and I'm, you know, a very active participant in that. I'm not an analyst. I don't sit there and just sort of, you know, ask open-ended questions, although that's a very effective form of therapy. That's what jives with you as the therapist, right? Right. It didn't jive for me. Me neither. I so, can't keep my mouth shut for that long. <laughs> like, oh, that's it's not going to happen. Yeah. On this show. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so what will usually happen is sort of the first chapter will surface. And then the other thing that is noteworthy about my style is I don't really give, like, more. And it's something that's really funny because over the years, like, people have asked me consistently, like, so what do I do? Like, what do I do? And my sort of stock answer and any patient that listens to this will laugh because they know what's coming next, that I'll say, you're doing it. The truth is, is that it's just, for me, this beginning section, like once somebody has that capacity to observe themselves, I always say, you basically don't need me Like, you could do this on your own now. You have the ability. You, most people stay because they feel really connected to me and the work. And that's great. They, you know, that's free will. You can do that. And I certainly enjoy the um, time working together. So, you know, I would say in terms of the balance between past and present, it weaves in and out as I want to try to understand why somebody is behaving in a certain way or feeling a certain way. I may start to poke around and ask historical questions. But a lot of times you'll within those first six sessions where you're really getting their history, I'll have a pretty good sense of like, oh, okay, I can see how like this is how their self-regulation is. This is how their sense of shame, their relationship to shame. And, you know, you can really put some, um, some stakes in the ground that will anchor what you start to formulate about someone. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I like how you talk about looking at the whole picture. I know you mentioned, um, you know, working on mindfulness and meditation and food. And can you talk a little bit about sort of how you try to pull all those pieces in together? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, a big question. You can break it up into however many chunks you want. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Um, so that one sort of that kind of I mean, I was raised by a mother who was extremely sort of like, she was like very, for, you know, for, for the day and age that I was being raised as a kid, she was, she was very alternative. Um, so like, I kind of had it already in my 
in my makeup. Um, and, but I will say as I started to work with clients, just one-on-one, I started to just find that a single pronged approach wasn't effective. It didn't yield the growth that I felt would be best for them. So, and I started noticing this connection between, you know, people that would come in and would have like a long history of trauma almost a hundred percent of the time. And by the way, trauma is what happens inside of you. It's not what happens to you, what happens inside of you, right? Yeah. How we perceive our life. That's a God or mate quote. And I just think it is so spot on. Wait, say it again. So, say it again. I because this is news uh, to yeah. me. I like this. Yes. It's, it's a good so way of good. thinking about it. Love him, love him, love him. Trauma isn't what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you. Mm. And so the reason I love that is because a lot of times, especially for people that are at a time in their life or were born into, you know, the lucky womb club where they could afford long-term insight-oriented therapy, a lot of times one of the things that, that humans will do to themselves is They'll judge and shame themselves for having any, air quotes, problem mm. because they're so fortunate, fill in the blank, right. good family, decent amount of money, educated, right? And they'll, they'll, in the absence of somebody else saying, who the hell are you to have any problems? They'll say it to themselves. And so that explanation of trauma covers that. Because it's not what happened. You can have a great childhood. You can have parents who loved you, but they're still human. There were failures. Right. There's failures in every parental attachment pattern. And um, how you metabolize your experiences is often where trauma generates from, right? Right. So, okay. So what I started to notice was even so people would come in and they would have traumas and that can be capital T or lowercase T, you know, and um, they would almost 100% of the time also have chronic pain or autoimmune disease. And I started to, I mean, I, I listen, I'm not like pioneering this, right? I started to like then be really attuned to other practitioners that were writing and talking about and being on podcasts about this connection between the physical body and psychological and our psychological interior. So that led me down this path. By the way, I was interested in it in myself. You know, I was always sort of like interested in how food works, helps with like hormones and mood and that kind of stuff. So that's really how I kind of started to essentially offer it to my patients. I would say to them, you know, like really, if somebody came in with um, just chronic pain, right, and they sort of exhausted everything that they could find to help, I started to say, you know, I know a really good acupuncturist if you're interested in trying. You know, you don't have to. Right. But if you want to try acupuncture. So I started to 
offer up things that I had been experimenting with in my own life, in my own process of trying to, you know, achieve a sense of wellness. And um, then it just really sort of took off from there. And now I would say I'm, I'm, I really consider myself part of this spectrum of what people call like functional medicine. Um, and well, and it seems like it's been getting a lot better buy-in, too. Popular. I mean, it's everywhere, oh, you know? So I think... It's everywhere. And Mark Hyman is, like, the big national guy. Mark Hyman, um, Pearl Mutter, Perry Walls. They're sort of the big faces of, like, these just, just passionate, smart, interested scientists. Right. And um, so it's... And it's been great. I mean, for my own life, it's been great. And I, I am very analytic, so I like doing all these kinds of, like, experiments, you know. Right. Um, but I, I've had patients, too, who have had really life-changing experiences when they start to really connect that, you know, it's a very rare breed that can, like, keep living like we did in our 20s throughout a lifetime and feel well, right. feel on the top of your game. Right. Well, um, and that's one of the things I love about being in my 40s is I kind of, I'm okay with that. You know, I kind of get oh, excited it's about it's telling, perfect age. it's the best. Yeah. And you oh. know what, and people like try to convince younger people like, oh, you're not, I'm like, no, I, I, I am in my 40s and I'm okay with that. You don't have to try to make me yeah. feel better about like my knee. Like, <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah, or it's, getting into bed before nine o'clock. Right. I'm like, yeah. It's the best. I know. Uh, Well, one of the things I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, because I go back and forth with, like, I read a lot about sort of the body positivity and the, the health at every size and that kind of thing. And there's part of me that gets hesitant about, and then I read um, Mark Hyman's stuff. And I guess I, and this is my own issue, maybe, is that I don't want to get too obsessed with like new rules. I feel like I've put so many rules on myself over time that do you know, am I making sense? Okay. So what do you do with that? I think it's a DSM diagnosis now. Don't quote me on that. As I said, I have no DSM guru. Right. Um, But it's called orthorexia, which is like this notion that you can be so rigidly healthy that you've basically got a disorder. Mm. Um, so I agree. I'm far from that because I'm not that healthy, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, yeah. but it's, it's almost like what you were saying about trauma. It's not so much what I'm eating, but like what goes on in your mind about it, it's you know, your, your reaction. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I completely agree. You know, and I've written about this on my blog, so it's not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not turning this into a therapy hour, but you know, I've had like in, at Georgetown, I was like a really, like I ran a ton I, I then I've had tried out lots of different sort of eating trends from vegetarianism to veganism to you know other stuff, um, and I have come to see over the last say ten years that most of that, any time that I sort of voyage into a rigidness, it is you it is no it is a hundred percent of the time because I'm trying to metabolize something deeply emotional, Hmm. and that's 
what I'm leaning on, right. what I leaned on. That's why that's probably why I'm analytic, right? I probably at some time in my life felt out of control. So I don't remember it, right? But the remnant is that what I did was I tried to consume information to make sense of my world. Right. So that's how my brain works now, right? So I agree completely. And so over the, I really sort of ascribe now to that Michael Pollan quote, and I always bastardize it, but it's something like, eat plants, mostly whole foods. It's basically saying, like, eat in moderation. Right. Um, that's what I try to do, okay. you know, for the most part. But I do, there are people for whom, like, they'll have, if I had a, a disease, right? Know, yeah, I would probably, like, I would do what Terry Walls is doing. She's this woman. She does a ketogenic diet. She's had, like, a miraculous um, recovery from MS. And uh, so, you know, I think there may be times in my life where I, where I do something more rigidly if my body expresses an overt illness. But I think if you're basically well, you know, just everything in moderation. Right. And observe. Observe why you're doing something. Observe how you talk to yourself about what you're doing. I do think that flexibility and dexterity, the ability to sort of comfortably um, flow between all kinds of different thoughts and feelings without the need to control them is a sign of health. That's kind of the wisdom that I love about getting older is just I feel like that's come over time. I'm not sure I was and maybe some people are just wired to have it earlier in life than others. That was not me. Like, I was very, like, just tell me what the rules are. I'll do it. And just what's the game plan, you know? Um, are you firstborn? I am. Yeah. Firstborns <laughs> or only children. I'm an only child. Firstborns tend to have that style. So I'm the youngest of six. So I was, like, born. I, I mean, from the moment I came to planet Earth, it was, like, the only way I was going to survive was to be like scrappy and indignant. So I have a very different, <laughs> you know, yes, style of yes. orbiting the world. But my older sister, the oldest of us, um, is very much that way. And my son has real strong tendencies towards just like, he's like, he'll say to me when we're, when we're out, he'll be like, you can't do that. It's against the rules. Right? Yep. <laughs> no, I was like yeah. that. I had three younger sisters. And I was like, I don't think this is a good idea. I think mom and dad wouldn't approve. And, you know, just always yeah. the party pooper. Um, no, I love that. I like that idea of, well, and I loved your blog post about pivoting. I think that's just such an awesome word to use. And yeah. just that agility that we're aspiring towards, because I think there's a lot of talk too about balance being kind of a myth, like that we're all going to be in this perfect state of like, you know, that it, or, or that it's fleeting, you know, like you might have a balanced moment, but it might last 30 seconds, you know, but it's that, oh, completely agree. yeah, it's that pivoting. That's sort of like the ability to adjust your sales, you know? Um, and some, yeah, sometimes we're you. better I, at, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I totally, I just totally agree. I completely agree. Like there, you just can't maintain like a namaste stamp forever. Right. Just, life happens. Um, 
and you know, life is not fair. It's not like you can positively think your way into being in a space where nothing ever impacts you. Right. There's a um, a woman I just spoke to recently. She's really into um, or writes about self compassion and how it relates to recovery. And she was talking just about how part of that, of the self-compassion is just having an acknowledgement that all human experiences involve suffering. And once you kind of are okay with that and come to terms with like, you're not unique in your suffering, like it, it but it just looks different for you than it does for someone else. Um, and that we're all in it together, you know, and that just kind of yeah. gives you not just compassion for yourself, but for others and what they might be going through and how they might be acting. Um but I thought that was a really good point. That's something that's relatable to things even outside of recovery. Yeah. Oh, I agree completely. They're universal. There's universal application to these kinds of concepts. Um, and that also makes us feel more connected to our fellow humans because it's like you get you can get yourself to a space where it's not like, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not an addict, so I don't know how that feels. You kind of do. If you strip back the behavior, which is addiction, we all know what it feels like to be human, right? And to struggle with that sense. I mean, I so I have some patients. I stopped years ago. I used to sort of open the hours sometimes unconsciously, right? So I'd sit down and I'd say to patients, "How are you?" And that's just like I cringe now. So I don't want to call them up and apologize, right? Um, because, you know, you first of all, you force them into a scale on good or on bad. Um, so I don't like that. But secondly is what I started to realize, which is sort of the same principle, is that my patients that would have the instinct to say I'm good, they would then go on, because this is like, you know, whatever direction we point our brain in, is the state, that's where we're going to end, right? So once they say I'm good, the rest of the dialogue is going to be about proving why they're good. And so I used then I started saying this phrase to them when they would get into that thing where good or great is just another cage. So even being striving for balance, that's just another cage. Right. Like, so then when you're not balanced, you're failing. You're like, oh, well, why was I balanced last week? And now I'm not balanced. Right. No, that's so true. Yeah, I like that. I like that discovery. Um, I wanted to know if you could talk a little more about this work that you're doing with performance. Is this like for businesses, for athletes, for American Idol auditions? I don't know. I put on Facebook, I don't know if you saw on Facebook, speaking of American Idol, I saw the most, there's like this thing going around about this 13-year-old who like, you'll have to check it out on my face. Yeah, I didn't see it. It's like, oh, my God, it's unbelievable. It made me cry before my performance. Um, but I digress. Okay. So, we'll, yeah. put a, we'll put a link to that um, singer on the show notes just so everybody can it check it out. It's so moving to see. Like, I said to my husband when we were watching it, like, she was put on planet Earth to do this. Yes. Um, okay, so a couple of years ago, in this whole process, I started to, actually, as I started my blog, I started to simultaneously get 
quite into this, this field of positive psychology. And um, so over the years, I've sort of moved further and further in this direction, which um, led me down this path of trying to understand, I guess the way they study it in the field is they study like flow states. And what that is is when there's like optimal access to creativity. And creativity, when we're talking about it neurobiologically, does not mean you have to create a painting or a work of quote art. It Creativity is when your cerebral cortex is sort of dimmed and you're in these states where you can generate um, optimal problem-solving Work real, you're able to work really collaboratively. Obviously, oftentimes, time will sort of fall in on itself, meaning you'll look up and be like, oh, my God, I just did something, you know, whatever it is, for two hours and had no idea. So I started to get, and there's a, there's a couple of guys, and you have to be guys, that um, are really sort of leading this interesting work right now. It's loosely tied to um, the research that's happening now on like um, psychedelics and microdosing. I don't do that part of it, not because I have anything against it, but because I don't have a scientist here that I'm in Honolulu that I would be, you know, doing research with in that way. Um, but it is sort of loosely tied to this movement of trying to understand how the brain can get into states that allow us for an optimal level of creativity without any um, side dialogue. You know, ever sat down to do something creative and all of a sudden you're like, I can't, I'm not creative, I can't color, I, I can't write, I can't get my thoughts out. So in these states, that voice really yeah. So I do, I work with executives, um, I work with organizations, and you know, I'm sort of in the beginning stages of building this part of my career. And uh, you know, right now I would say it's like 80, 20, like 80 percent of my patients are sort of classic therapy pieces, and 20 are more performance-based. And there are real distinctions. Um, Who are the two so, guys that you were mentioning that are big in this space? Yeah, they're awesome. So Stephen Kotler, he wrote this book that like it literally blew my mind. And anybody that's out there that's like interested in this stuff, he's a guy you want to look up. He's written, I just took a writing seminar with him. He's just a super dynamic, super irreverent guy. Um book that blew my mind on this is called Stealing Fire, and he co-wrote it with his colleague, and they run this company called the Flow Genome Project, um, and that gentleman is Jamie Wheel, and Wheel is W-H-E-A-L. Okay. Um, they're doing a ton of interesting stuff, and basically, if you are into it, if you're interested in this, you can go look at their stuff and you'll go down a gazillion rabbit holes that will take you into 
lots of resources and references. Oh, awesome. I know. Um, I think I'm going to listen yeah. to it on Audible because I keep buying books and the stack on my nightstand just keeps growing oh, and growing Never and ever. growing. I know. <laughs> but if I listen Never somehow. Yeah, I know. It's easier. I know. I'm the same way. I have to reread every page. Like the, ne- the next night, I have to like go back like two or three pages. So I'm like, wait, I don't even remember what I read. Yes. And it's heavy stuff. I mean, sometimes if it's if it's being read to me and I'm driving, it's like that's maybe when I'm more alert anyway. Um, okay, so I like that. And it so, could be that the auditory part of your brain is um, more online right now, right? Like it could be, you know, it's motherhood. It, it, there's a lot of different things. Right. It just could be that if we looked at you under an fMRI, the auditory processing part of your brain it's heavily online right now. I love this neurobiology perspective on things. I feel like you could give me reasons for all the ways that my brain feels like it's either, because I did, I was reading something basically about how as you get older, you might have a better sense of like, you're basically what I was saying about wisdom. Like you, I feel like I get a lot of things now that I didn't get before, but I don't remember like where the library book is or, you know, what, what I'm supposed to, just details and things to remember, it's harder. Um, oh, I agree. And I, I don't know. I basically like there being a scientific reason other than me just. There is. And, <laughs> exactly. And, and also notice, too, that often, like, the, the explanations that that I'll give, they are positive. They're not pathologic, right? Like, I'm not looking for pathology right. anymore in clients. I am looking to just understand who they are in their purest sense. If something persistent continues to show up that seems, quote, pathologic, that's where psychology sort of took a fork in the road, right? We spent most of our time learning pathology. I went to school for eight years after college uh, in, in between my training and my academic studies. And I never took a positive psychology class, but I took a lot of abnormal psych classes. Right. So we we got trained to look for pathology, but oftentimes it is better explained by just something that is happening. For me, I call it at a neurobiological level. And it also counteracts the patient's tendency to think, I don't know why I can't read anymore. I must be lazy. Right. I was thinking the exact same thing. It's always like we we kind of want to tend towards laziness or as the explanation. But I would never tell you that. I would notice in your life what you're all the things you're doing, all the things you're accomplishing. But for myself, that's sort of our go to. Yeah. It's always deficit based. Right. right? And you'd never look at if one of your kids began to express a certain learning preference that was like, different than before, you wouldn't be like, you're just being lazy. You would you would you would take the time to be like, okay, let me see like let's see if a learning disability is developing or a learning difference. Or let's see like if something's going on within the classroom, right? You you would show genuine curiosity. Right. Not criticism. Right. We're much more um, generous with other people than we are with ourselves, that's for sure. Um, well, I'm wondering if there's anything that you were hoping I would ask you about or that you're going to get a chance to talk about that we haven't hit on. No, this has been great. I feel um, like we should have our own talk show, like The View, but it's not going to be The View. It's going to have a better name. 
Yeah, I was talking to a patient the other day because I opened my therapy hour with this phrase. Now I say, well, I try to think which one I said to him. So, oh, I said, tell me everything. Oh, yes. That's yeah. how I open it. I said, tell me everything. So we could name our show. Tell, tell me, me everything. everything. I love it. I love it. Have you, do you ever listen to the podcast? What's her name? Elsa Peretti or something? I'm totally hacking her name. And oh, yeah. Where um, do we begin or something like that? Yes. Um, Oh my God, I love her. She's it's like couples therapy, books. right? Yes, I love her. Esther Perel. Esther Perel, yeah. And um, yeah. I mean, I was listening to it and I liked it okay, but I guess because I have been in therapy sessions so much that I, it wasn't surprising really to me, you know, the process of yeah. things. But I guess there's yeah. just that interest that people have to be inside the room and just kind of hear what goes on. There's a lot of, I think, fear around what happens in a therapy room and you know, oh, what, sure. and a lot of it is based on just odd things that people see on TV, like the stereotypes or the caricatures of what, what that would look like. Yeah. And I think also it's often a reflection of our fears about our own goodness. Are we good? Are we okay? Am I broken or damaged or the shame, the things we carry that have shame? We're often worried that therapy will somehow like you know, unearth that and you'll be like completely sort of found out. Right. Right. Um, and that's really not the experience that I have with my, my patients right. at all. And you know? I would say so, if you go into therapy and that's how you feel, you need to find a different therapist. Like something is not right in that sure. exchange. And that's the thing I think people, if you're already kind of doubting yourself, and then you feel like something's not working or there's not a connection in therapy, that's not on you. You know, it just means it's not a good connection. Yeah, I always tell my patients, like, when they first come in, I always say, you know, that they're auditioning me, not the other way around. Right. And that they should, you know, certainly by the end of the second session, maybe if it's somebody whose neurobiology wires them to be indecisive, maybe you need three sessions. But most people will have a sense by the end of the first hour together. Right. And I say, you know, it's like it's like anything with chemistry. You either think to yourself, there's good basic chemistry and I can work with her, or it isn't. And if it isn't, there's no ego. I will find you a referral that wants for Right. Um, and I, I do agree. Yeah. Um, so my last question, I ask this at the end of each podcast, um, in talking about just mental health and self-care for other people. You know, a lot of what you do is very caretaking work. Um, what is something that you do for your own self-care? How do you make sure you're keeping yourself healthy in the midst of helping other people stay healthy? That's a good question. Um, and I'm just a gal to ask that because I always joke that I, I'm like, this vessel needs a lot of us. <laughs> So as does mine, as does mine, my yeah. lucky husband. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, sure, okay. Yeah. So, um, but I get sort of in there, you know, staying true to who I am. I get like fixated on a certain thing and then I do it like exhaustively for years. So right now my biggest self-care obsession is I take, I live in a condo building um, and I take a sauna every day for a minimum of 20 minutes at a temperature higher than 174. Wow. Um, and I incorporate, so I do my mindfulness in there. 
you know, I sort of, and I do a particular type of mindfulness, but, you know, there's lots of different ways to slice that apple, so it doesn't have to be, but I do the type that's endorsed by John Kabat-Zinn, which is called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. I've written about it on my um, blog, if anybody's interested, but they can also Google him, and so that's the type that I do. I love that. I um I need to check out a sauna. I do live in San Antonio, so part of me feels like I'm in a sauna most of the time. time But it is nice to be able to just sit there. And I have had a meditation practice, and I notice when I am actually implementing it, my life seems to feel a little bit better. Um, But for whatever reason, it's just tough to sustain. But I guess that's the part of being self compassionate and just kind of like getting back on the horse. It is just that you have the muscle and you, you know, you can, you can always call on it. But yeah, sauna stuff is, I mean, for me right now, my, my top dog. I, I love think. that. Yeah. I love yeah, hearing what right. other people's things are just because, you know, the same things don't always work for everybody. And so, you know, you hear, oh, I like to, you know, I don't know hit a punching bag or whatever, whatever people do. Yes. And that's so and not something that's to interesting to me. It yeah. really is meditating. Right. You know, like the thought of sitting in a sauna for 20 minutes is like, well, you want to scratch his eyes out. But going to the, the range, I will bet you if we got functional MRIs right after, both of us have a similar state of mind. Right. And yes. Um, and so I completely agree. And the other thing I would say is that the it's the process of figuring out what works for you where all the growth happens, right? Not like it's not the destination. So it's true, everybody is different, and that just the process of taking time to figure out what it is that works for you to help you feel well or tolerant of discomfort, probably more accurate, um, is is really, the, that's the ticket. Right. And the process, and it is a process. I think it's a process for everyone. And like you were saying, the process that works for you at some points in your life might not work in other points in life. Like you might get frustrated, like this has always worked and it's not working now. Well, you're a different person than you were five years ago. Maybe you need a different Exactly. I would approach. even take might not. Yeah, I would take might not out of that and say right. it won't. Right? True, like true. We are in a constant state of evolving. And if we just maintain observation and curiosity about what is happening for us in our interior world, you know, things will change all the time. Like right now, I couldn't, I could not think about it going out and running eight miles. But every day of my life at Georgetown, I did. And I'd argue I couldn't have survived that experience without it. Right. Now I'd be like in traction at the hospital. Right. Waiting for surgery. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. And I think, but that's the thing, being in tune with what your body's asking for, what your mind is asking for in given times, and not just assuming it's going to be what your best friend does or what you did five years ago. You know, it's just, it's a constantly evolving thing. And here's the, I guess the last thing I would say is this, that by doing this, right, by by approaching our process of self-discovery this way, we change 
our children's neurobiology. That's, that's how we pass on intergenerational patterns, is that children ultimately, it, it, you know, it's based on the series of imprints. And so we pass on to our children and we interact with the input the very way their brains develop by living our life in certain ways. And so by displaying that kind of flexibility, this is all work, by the way. You're not saying, look at mommy being very flexible. I'm changing my morning routine. Right. You're just you're just doing it. Right. And because we are animals that only survive through the process of attachment, it is often these sort of wordless rhythms that give semblance and cadence to our, in this case, home life that influence our children most profoundly. And um, so, you know, we're, we're just, we are the horror of it. I know. I'm like, no, oh, that's too much pressure. I don't want that. Take it back. <laughs> if we were in therapy, I would say, I know, take it and erase it. You'll yes. get on the editing board. Yes. Um, <laughs> if we were in therapy together, I would have us slow down and really observe that reaction. Right. And we would really take it apart, right? right? And give you space fully because there would be more behind it as there is for all of us. But yes, generally speaking, if we really try to think too much about how much influence we have over a little psyche, it is a wonder anybody grows. Right. It is. And it's sometimes oh, you have to just oh. put it, acknowledge it and then put it away. Because if you're too fixated <laughs> on it, then I'm going to have a mental breakdown. That's just not going to happen. Um, but I do, I think there's so much truth in it too. And it is, it's very, it can be very overwhelming. Um, well, I just loved talking to you. I love that we haven't spoken for many years and we just get right to the crux of all our important issues. And I like that. I know we think the same things are important, which is why I enjoy talking to you. (laughs) This has been great. And if your brain style, which is very different than mine, as we discussed, ever gets around creating that second podcast, I'll sit right there in the co-pilot chair. No I love questions it. Asked. I love yeah. it. I love you it. Have that, you have that skill. I love it. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate so you sharing all you know, and um, let's definitely keep in touch. I hope you enjoyed listening to me talk to Dr. Sarah Sarkis and learn something about just how your brain works. I love talking to smart people like Sarah who think about things and the way our brains work in ways that I just don't. I just kind of, I think it probably overwhelms me to think about it that way, so I just don't do it. So I love hearing her perspective on things. If you haven't already, I would love if you would subscribe to The Family Brain and leave a review. It helps other people find our podcast. And I just want to give a shout out to Game Day Media for producing the Family Brain Podcast and also a shout out to Jill Goolsby, who does my show notes and is my, I feel like we need a good name for her, Editorial Chief. Does that sound good? Just Chief. So thank you for all of the people who helped me produce the show and we'll see you next time. The Family Brain is produced by Game Day Media. Executive producers are Megan Gibson, John Largent, and Jason Barrera. Studio producer is Michael Largent. To learn more about the Family Brain podcast, go to Facebook and search The Family Brain.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.